0: listening to the podcast of striving minds network. Join us as we shed light on mental health topics rarely discussed because of stigma. We are not a substitute for diagnosing and counseling, but rather an open platform to make mental health conversations a thing. Thank you for tuning in again to striving minds network. This is the podcast where we talk about all things mental health. My name is Esther Gomez, your host, and today I have invited kayla marmosa hi kayla hi how are you esther i'm great thank you thank you for joining us
1: thank you for having me
0: do you mind sharing a little bit about
1: yourself of course yeah so my name is kayla i am a licensed mental health counselor and i've been working with clients for almost seven years now I recently opened a psychotherapy practice in Coral Gables, Florida. It's called Pillar Mind and Behavior. And I'm just really excited to be here today. I appreciate you featuring me.
0: Thank you. Tell us a little about a little bit about yourself, where you're from.
1: Sure. So, I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, but I've actually lived in Miami close to 12 years now. So, I kind of did most of my education here, um, my undergrad, one of my graduate degrees, and then I worked here in the counseling field for a bit after that. Um, I also took a little bit of hiatus from Miami. I worked in a private practice in New York for a bit when I was getting my doctorate degree in mental health counseling, and there I also had the opportunity to help run a research lab out of Pace University. Um, and I also got to teach a couple classes there. So that was really exciting. But I'm happy to be back here.
0: Awesome. It seems like you've worn a, a lot of hats.
1: Yeah, yeah, in a good way. I think it's it's nice to be exposed to different sides of the field. Um, I think at times it can be a little overwhelming or intimidating, but it just, it, it made me kind of like a more well-rounded um, clinician. So it opened my eyes to a lot of different things, which was great.
0: Uh, What made you decide to, to get into mental health counseling?
1: That's a good question. I get that a lot. I know, you know, a lot of different therapists kind of have their own story. For me, the best answer I have was just growing up really as early as I can remember, just always being very interested in others. I was always the little girl that was kind of quiet and just observing and taking things in you know, in my surroundings and just analyzing a lot. Um, I was always really interested in the human minds and human behavior. And as I kind of got older, you know, and started developing social relationships and closer family bonds, I quickly kind of just automatically, it feels like became that shoulder to cry on. So in that regard, I almost felt like it was just kind of this like natural calling. Um, Yeah. And it just became this this deep-seated interest of mine to just understand people. Um, So that's kind of where it started.
0: So when you say understand people, how were you able to correlate the two when it comes to your definition of mental health?
1: Yeah, well, so, I mean, when I was younger, I knew that I was interested in, in mind and behavior. Um, I didn't know the technical term for that, so it would be years later that I would understand that was called, you know, psychology, um, understanding the human mind and the workings of that. Mental health, I think, you know, just growing up and kind of witnessing tragedies in life that I didn't want to see, but kind of hit close to home at times, um, suicide, you know, accidental or intentional drug overdoses, um, tragic accidents resulting from kind of certain mental health problems. I think that kind of, you know, was upsetting, but motivated me in ways to just want to understand where this was coming from. Um, and, And, you know, every person I came across in life and meeting new personalities and hearing new stories, I was always the person that really wanted to understand why, you know, that was always kind of, the question ringing in my mind. So it, it just, you know, it led me down this kind of ongoing and still ongoing path of learning. Um, yeah, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. I, I got all the degrees, but I really believe in this field. You're just ever learning and there's never enough to learn. There's, you know, new things every day. You meet new people every day. And that's what I love about it.
0: Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. As you've been in this field for a little over seven years, what is um, the population you serve?
1: So I work mainly with youth. Um, I work with children, adolescents, up to young adults, so kind of like college age, even a little bit older. Um, and I really specialize, well, I should say I work with a variety of of kind of presenting problems, whether that's social difficulties, um, just life transitions, Um, self-esteem, but then I really specialize in anxiety disorders. Um, So that's kind of my my main specialty. And under that, I have a lot of experience and work a lot also with ADHD, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or, you know, full functioning, kind of full blown disorders. And so a lot of people might think, oh, you know, what else is there besides anxiety? So according to the DSM-5, which is a manual that we kind of use, you know, to cluster symptoms and kind of categorize our clients, has a lot of different disorders that fall under anxiety. So I work a lot with social anxiety disorder disorder generalized anxiety disorder, which is kind of like that umbrella term, Um, selective mutism, which can be seen in in young, young children, and separation anxiety, panic attacks, panic disorder. So there's really a wide variety that kind of falls under that umbrella that I see on a day-to-day.
0: Can you uh, elaborate more on what generalized anxiety looks like versus social anxiety?
1: Yeah, that's also a good question, and I think it's important to kind of differentiate. So generalized anxiety is really kind of this ongoing, excessive, and often unrealistic worry or fear about everyday situations. And when it's considered or classified a disorder, that's when it really often is so severe or moderate that it really interrupts our day-to-day functioning. Um, so that's going to affect us maybe going to school in the morning, maybe getting to our job on time or kind of surviving the workday, um, social relationships, even our emotional health and our self-esteem. And it's it's very prevalent. Um, so, you know, even when I am working with someone who comes in for something they might think that's going on, oftentimes this anxiety is really core mote comorbid I'm sorry okay. and I feel that what's what's most important to understand while I'm talking about this on the podcast is you know I talk about this interfering of day-to-day functioning and I think it's important for listeners to know that you don't need to have this really severe kind of crippling anxiety to come in for treatment um, so even when we have that kind of mild, anxiety, you know, that might be preventing us from a good night's rest or just from concentrating or, you know, just kind of sitting on our mind in some ways. Um, Therapy is still very beneficial and effective. So it doesn't need to be that kind of in that severe, severe or disorder classification.
0: With social anxiety, I could kind of relate with that um, now that I'm thinking about it. When I was young, I really had a hard time just being alone, Mm
1: -hmm. in the
0: sense, like, in front of people. So, like, in high school, I didn't have many friends. So, like, when the bus would drop me off in the mornings, like, I didn't just want to sit there by myself with nobody. So, I would purposely hang out, you know, before class started in the science classroom with a few other students. And then I felt I guess better. I'm more at ease. I guess my anxiety wasn't as high, Mm -hmm. you know, just sitting by myself when everyone else had their own friends. I struggled with that a lot, like in high school. And even as um, a young adult, I hated going to restaurants and sitting by myself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's Thank you for sharing that. I mean, we hear that a lot. And like you said, adolescence is a really critical time period that kind of requires you to be social in so many ways. You know, you're, you're going to school every day. Um, a lot of changes are going on. You're interacting with peers, with teachers. Maybe even you're at the point where you're finding a summer job. You know, all of that are getting into relationships requires some types of you know social skill and kind of some interpersonal skills and you know for someone with social anxiety that's really difficult and that's that's really really challenging and i think that you know as a society when we look at someone you know social anxiety almost turned into this kind of like meme like oh i have social anxiety i'm not going to go here but it's really much more than that i think people sometimes downplay it as kind of just being shy Um, you know, and, and it's not that it's, it's really something that can be much more, um, debilitating and often, well, always, it really occurs in social situations where we feel we are exposed to, to possible scrutiny by others. And that's really what we fear. So it's kind of this fear-based disorder, which, which all anxiety disorders are, they occur when we overestimate a threat. And we underestimate our ability to cope with it. Um, so with social anxiety, we really have this intense fear of being judged and evaluated negatively by our peers or by other people. And what happens is we often cope by avoiding. And you know that seems like the quick fix, the easy answer. Naturally, let's just avoid it, and then I, I won't feel that. And you know that feels comfortable in the moment. But what it's doing is it's actually creating this kind of vicious cycle and it perpetuates this anxiety and it it maintains it. And, you know, what's interesting is if we avoid for so long, what we're doing is we're really kind of losing these social skills. And when we lose these social skills and we come up and we're faced with the situation again, we're just going to be more anxious. We don't have those at our hand. It's really kind of scary in the sense that it can wreak havoc on our emotional well-being and social relationships, um, if we kind of don't pay attention to it or get help for it.
0: And then what are some physical symptoms relating to social anxiety or anxiety in general?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of, um, of those kind of physiological symptoms that come with any kind of anxiety, Um, With social anxiety, we'll often see or get reports of, you know, being in this social situation and we get flushing of the face, right? So that embarrassment, maybe a rapid heartbeat, um, some shallow breathing, you know, in excessive cases when this anxiety kind of spirals, it can develop into a panic attack. So often, too, I think it's interesting to note, I do see a lot of kids and, I have kids that come in with social anxiety who are using this coping skill of avoidance. You know, they'll, they'll call their mom from school. I want to go home. They'll go to the nurse often, you know, saying that they're sick. And for them, it might feel very real that they are sick. But oftentimes, these stomach aches and these headaches that they complain of are really manifesting from this, this anxiety that they have. So it, it pops up in many, many different ways, um, you know, and it's important for All of us and parents and teachers to kind of be aware of that.
0: And then you're talking about avoidance. How would that look like in an adult or young adult?
1: Yeah, so, you know, as young adults, we do the same thing. Um, So, kind of, I'm talking in the context of school a lot, but if we replace that with work, right? So, you know, avoiding a work presentation. Oftentimes, with social anxiety, there's kind of this subcomponent of presenting in front of people, which can be really nerve wracking for anyone. Um, I think, you know, when it becomes this kind of persistent fear that you're actively going out of your way to avoid all the time is when it it becomes a big problem, right? We really can't get through it. So, in answer to your question with adults, we'll see them avoiding work obligations or social obligations. You know, last minute canceling on social plans, just not being able to kind of handle that discomfort or unease. Will I embarrass myself? You know, what if I say something that sounds awkward? What will this person think of me? Um, The list goes on. It also affects obviously very much so as a young adult, you know, relationships, romantic relationships, friendships, kind of initiating and maintaining those friendships or relationships. Um, can definitely be a kind of a consequence, you know, of this social anxiety.
0: Can someone, is there a possibility for someone to acknowledge that they may have social anxiety?
1: That's also a good question. So typically, often actually, someone who's diagnosed with social anxiety or has social anxiety is very aware of it. Um, they know that this is really getting in the way of their day-to-day Um, you know, it pops up every, every day, they can feel it while some of the physiological symptoms, like I mentioned for someone younger, you know, the stomach aches, the headaches, they might not be able to connect that as clearly to, Oh, this is my social anxiety. That person likely can kind of verbalize and come to terms with the fact that, you know, this is wreaking havoc in my life. I'm socially anxious around people. I get nervous before events. I avoid events. So they have that insight.
0: How often do you see people come in when they're addressing their anxiety or it's usually for something else?
1: Well, you know, I always say I feel like our society today is doing a great job with mental health awareness. So even platforms like your podcast is, is great. You know, we're seeing more and more of these things we're seeing on the news, you know, mental health is a huge topic. So I think that that's kind of brought awareness to all of us. I do think we're still working on reaching out for help for ourselves. I think that's still in in some ways to some people a little bit shameful, if you will, a little embarrassing. So with that in mind, I definitely feel there's a lot more people out there that that haven't come forward with this, um, with this kind of social anxiety or, or some type of anxiety. I do feel, though, the people that come in were able to kind of quickly recognize that this is what's going on. And, and with them having that insight, oftentimes they'll come in and say, you know, this is what I am struggling with. Maybe they might not know the name for it, but they'll be able to describe it, how it's affecting their lives. And the good news is it's, it's treatable. Um, This is something that there's a lot of evidence-based research out there and therapies to, to treat any anxiety disorder, but we're talking specifically about social anxiety right now.
0: Do you have any insights on healthy coping mechanisms for people that struggle with either severe anxiety or just the normal day-to-day anxiety?
1: Yeah, well... So I, and I should have mentioned this earlier, I realized I didn't. So I am certified in something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which I know you're familiar with. Um, for our viewers, CBT for short, it is kind of the connection between our thought patterns, our feelings, and our behaviors. And so the way I work in therapy is I really kind of start at the origins of our thoughts and the patterns of our thoughts and kind of our core beliefs growing up and kind of how that manifests this whole cycle of how we feel and then how we behave. And the reason I bring that up is sure, there's definitely kind of shortcuts or little techniques to use day to day with this anxiety. Um, I, f- I feel though, and I, I might be biased that there's always a deeper kind of root. And I think that In order to kind of clear this up and lessen this anxiety, we really need to get to that. So, I mean, in answer to your question, kind of some of the day-to-day things that you can do, you know, um, breathing techniques, practice meditation, you know, before getting nervous for a social event, I would say the number one thing is catch yourself when you're avoiding. Catch yourself when you're trying to make an excuse to sit home And maybe not every social event in the beginning, but choose one or two that you feel you can push yourself through. The reason for this is when we sit home and avoid, we are missing out on the opportunity to see that we can survive this event. Um, We're missing out on the opportunity to see that maybe we'll get evidence from this event that's going to go against our prior negative thoughts that these people don't like me or I'm going to say something stupid. If we sit home, we don't have that opportunity to kind of to gather that evidence. And we work on that a lot in cognitive behavioral therapy as well. So that's, that's something I would kind of keep tabs on. Um, also just opening up to a friend. Um, sometimes, you know, this disorder can be very shameful. A lot of people think that they're the only ones, especially looking on social media today, you know, seeing posts that people are out and having fun. Um, we know that's, You know, sometimes that can kind of be a false impression of people. Um, But it's, you know, it can be shameful. People can feel very alone in this. And I think that it's important to know that, you know, they're not alone. There's other people struggling with this. So opening up to a friend and just sharing some of those anxieties and what you feel like can be kind of cathartic in itself.
0: Would you say that medication helps to a degree?
1: yeah so i always tell clients and parents of clients i'm obviously not a psychiatrist so you know i kind of lead leave the that uh, advice to the the medical professionals however um with my training and the things that i've seen i feel that medication is extremely helpful especially for those with that kind of more severe anxiety so you know once we get to a point where Sometimes it might not feel manageable just by kind of CBT or talk therapy. We'll get them over to a psychiatrist who can do kind of a thorough evaluation and they may recommend some type of SSRI or anti-anxiety medication, you know, that can get them to a place where then therapy and the kind of the combined effects can work more. So, yeah, I, I've referred out to psychiatrists many times and I've seen it you know, to kind of boost them in ways and be helpful. I think it's important to remember medication kind of mitigates symptoms. So it's always important for that kind of behavioral piece in therapy just to develop those kind of skills.
0: Going back to what you had mentioned about, you know, children just having social anxiety, what recommendations can you give parents um, as far as maybe like educating parents on how to help their kids in a healthy way.
1: It's interesting, a lot of parents come in to me and will say, is this my fault? Did I kind of create this? And I think it's a really common question but I think it's important to understand that there's really a combination of factors in regards to the etiology or the origins of anxiety disorders. And you know, that, that there is a, a genetic component but there's also environmental factors, brain chemistry, Um, everyday social interactions. So, you know, I feel that with parents, it's important for me to let them know, you know, this is not your fault. However, you know, realistically, there are ways that parents can kind of make this worse or make this better. And so those are kind of a lot of the things that I review with parents, certain techniques that they can use um to make sure that they're avoiding enabling that avoidance. So I go back to that avoidance because it's such a crucial part of of the cycle of this anxiety. And oftentimes with children, you know, as as I completely understand, a parent does not want to see their kid uncomfortable. So when their kid calls from school completely anxious, they need to come home or they beg mom in the morning and they're crying, I don't want to go. You know, often parents will kind of give in um, for different reasons, you know, people have told me before they don't want to see their kids suffering, or maybe it's easier on mom not to fight with the child in the morning. I make it very known that when we're doing this, we're only enabling that avoidance. And what that's teaching your child is when something difficult or uncomfortable comes my way, I can just take the easy way out and just avoid all along, not realizing that it's really perpetuating the cycle. It's making that anxiety more intense. So I do a lot of psychoeducation with parents, um, just in terms of what this looks like in the brain, what's, what neurotransmitters are being affected, how that's manifesting in their behavior and kind of what they can do as a parent to maybe help better the situation.
0: When, um, as you mentioned with the brain, the brain's activity, can you elaborate more on brain chemistry?
1: Sure. And not to go too off topic, before I mention that, I, I realized, because this is important for parents to know too, I left off in, in answer to your last question, this key aspect of modeling. So I think something else I work with parents on is the way we model our behaviors to our children. Um, at a young age, and even beyond that, as adolescents and young adults, oftentimes we really look to our parents kind of as, you know, they know all. And when, as parents and adults, we model these behaviors, let's say when we're anxious ourselves and we respond with a coping mechanism such as avoidance or maybe getting really upset or not handling it in an appropriate way, our kids easily pick up on that. And you know they learn our coping skills from our parents. So it's just important to remember that when we confront our own anxiety as parents, um, we handle it in ways that, that we would feel comfortable with our child mimicking. So going back to the question of the brain chemistry. So anxiety, just like a lot of disorders in our field, are constantly being studied in the brain. And, you know, we have billions of neurons in our brain that are interacting and it's, it's complicated. So there's always new things, kind of new research coming out. What we know with anxiety is just a few kind of areas in the brain that are being lit up Um, are the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, and the hippocampus. And each of these kind of have different functions. So for example, the amygdala is kind of known as our primary fear processing center. Um, Our hippocampus has to do with memory, and it provides context to situations kind of based on similar experiences. And then our prefrontal cortex has to do with our attention, emotions, and social behavior. And Somehow, you know, as scientists and research have kind of studied all this, we know that social anxiety and anxiety in general has to do with these three areas of the brain. Um, They might function differently in individuals with anxiety or um, look differently even in size. Um, So we're kind of still researching those things, but just putting it all together, knowing that there's Kind of a lot of emotionality involved in these areas of the brain, and a lot of fear processing. So it's very interesting to kind of keep up. And what I try to do is keep up on a lot of the research here. This is all part of the psychoeducation that I kind of inform parents about as well.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much for all these all this information. Of course, I'm grateful. Do you have anything else to share uh, before we wrap up regarding anxiety?
1: Um, yeah, I think I just want to mention one thing which I didn't mention earlier. And I think it's important for people to recognize that anxiety really exists on a spectrum. So it's actually completely normal for every single one of us in this world to have a little anxiety um, and even sometimes to react to a stressful situation with a little anxiety. That's just in our human nature, it's actually how we survived and evolved as a species. So, you know, it's really, I tell people anxiety is the thing that actually gets us up in the morning and and gives us motivation at times. So with that being said, no one's anxiety level is at a zero. Um, So in that sense, anxiety can really serve us in some ways, um, just getting us going and motivating us. And it's only when it becomes really excessive um, that it can be interfering in life, when it's severe and debilitating. And, and that's when it can manifest itself in many different ways, kind of behaviorally and physiologically, as we talked about earlier. And that's really kind of a sign that, all right, this is time that I kind of sit down and, and reach out for, for some help for this.
0: Do you mind sharing with our listeners, again, the name of your practice and how they can reach you in case they want to set up an appointment with you?
1: Yeah, sure. So my practice is called Pillar, P-I-L-L-A-R, Mind and Behavior. It's located in Coral Gables, Florida. The way that you can set up an appointment probably most easily is going to my website. That's www.pillarmindandbehavior.com. You can read a little bit more about the treatments that I provide and my background and also kind of submit any questions or set up an appointment. And then, also, I'll give you guys my number, it's 786-332-4340. And I offer free 15-minute phone consultations to see if it's an appropriate fit. So I look forward for anyone and encourage anyone, if any of this kind of resonated with you, come forward, don't be ashamed, this is very common and I'm so happy to help.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information, visit us at www.strivingmindsnetwork.com.